18, as we begin this, I guess it's a mini-series of some nature anyway, 14 sermons or so on the glory of Christ. Uh, this time of the year especially, we should take note of that. It's why I deliberately plan to preach this sermon this day, and then this evening in our worship service, uh, preach on the glory of Christ and his incarnation. So this was intentional. Uh, but in order for us to really see the glory of Christ, we need to see what it is we're going to see. We need to know what it is we should be seeing. And so we begin in John chapter 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer, as many of you know. This is the prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Father, not only for himself, but on behalf of you and me, shortly before he went to the cross. John chapter 17, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Let's give attention to this, what is indeed the very word of the living God, the very prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for himself, but also for you. John 17, reading the entirety of the chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, these know that you have sent me I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider uh, this chapter topically uh, as it's arranged. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, as we now turn our attention to this series, this Um, endeavor that we have here that we might behold the glory of Christ. Even as your son prayed so long ago that we would see his glory, we ask, Father, that you would give us the eyes to see, that you would help us by the eternal spirit, that as we consider this portion of your word and the various subjects and topics throughout this series, that you would indeed change our understanding, righten it, correct it if necessary, that we might behold Christ in all of his glory. Help us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. Defining something that is all-glorious is frankly hard to do. The definition of glory is, quote, something that secures praise and honor Something marked by splendor and beauty. Each of you have seen sunrises that defy words. Somehow the word glorious just falls short of what your eyes are witnessing. It just doesn't get there, does it? It's, it's somewhat adequate, but really lands so far short of what you're really witnessing. At this time of the year, I suspect, as you drove around town, as you perhaps decorated your homes and you put up lights and and some of you children, you stand and you witness the the Christmas trees or the lights on homes and and you see some, not all, some are just circuses, but, but some that are just beautiful. You might describe them as glorious. You might describe them in a way that tries to approach what it is you're witnessing with your eyes. That somehow, it just seems to fall short. Somehow, that sunrise, just that description, just doesn't get there. Somehow, in some way, it just doesn't adequately define or describe what it is you're witnessing. Well, the same can be said about seeing the glory of Christ. It is, of course, something that the redeemed of the Lord long to see. They they want to see his glory. If you're a Christian this morning, this is something that your heart wants more than really anything else. More than any single thing. More important children than the presents you're going to receive tomorrow. The most important thing, the most important desire for a Christian is that they might see Christ. Christ. And all of his beauty and majesty, 
really in all of his glory. It'll happen, of course, someday. Whether the Lord takes you home early ahead of his return, his second coming, or at that moment in which he does return to bring his church to where he is, you will see then the glory of Christ. Maybe you'll be able to speak, and maybe you won't. Maybe you'll stand in praise and adoration, and maybe you'll bow in humble praise and reverence to him. Whatever the case may be, the day is coming. And the very words that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Father in this chapter so long ago will come true, will be answered. In the affirmative, as the people of God stand in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, and they will see him in all of his beauty, with eyes uncluttered by the veil of this life. But you know, it's possible to see something of the glory of Christ now. It is possible for you and me to see the glory of Christ today. It can be seen today. No, not as clearly as your heart may want. But it can be seen in the person and work of Christ as given to us in the biblical record. Yes, you will see it dimly. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13. You will see it dimly but it will encourage your heart. It will cause you to persevere. It will cause you to continue to walk that road that you're on, that you might eventually see him, not with eyes of faith, but with eyes by sight, to behold him as he is. How do you describe Christ? What what words really adequately capture the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us in the pages of the Bible. And all that he did and all that he labored to do and all of the stories that we've heard since we were children, uh, the story of this time of the year and the birth of Christ that we'll hear more about this evening, does it drive you to see the glory of Christ? Does it cause you to stand in awe of the majesty of who he is? Do you even want to see it? Maybe you don't care. Maybe the work of Christ and the presentation of his glory is just merely routine in your life. And it may be. And I trust and have prayed that as we together go through these 14 sermons or whatever it ends up being, that you will see the glory of Christ in a way you've never seen him before. You'll consider his labor and his work, and you'll see it dimly, yes, but you'll see something of it. You'll see something of the Savior who paid that great debt, and you'll stand in awe of who he is that it will stir your hearts and your minds in greater affection uh, for him. The context of John 17 is, as I've already stated, Jesus is praying. It is quite clear, of course, that it is a prayer. The entirety of the prayer, I was actually going to time it, for those of you who think I pray too long, to tell you just how long this prayer is. It's 
not a couple minutes if you read it out loud, but it's a prayer. It's done in, at the very precipice of the crucifixion. That's right there. The cross is right in front of him. That cross that he desired to endure, that we would be able to see something of his glory. You see, without the cross, this, these sermons wouldn't, wouldn't even be possible. It was the Savior's joy to give his life for you. But he needs his Father's help. He needs the strength of the Spirit to do the work. He prays, he pleads with the God of heaven for these things. But he doesn't just pray for himself. He prays for his people. He prays, as it were, as the, as the great high priest, but also as a prophet, knowing that his people are going to struggle and they're going to languish in this world as opposed, as people opposed because they love him and want to see his glory. And he prays that they would. He prays that his father would show his people his glory. And so I want to show you that very goal this morning. I want to show you the goal of the Savior, that you may see his glory through his activities on earth. It's highlighted for us in this chapter. It's not exhaustive. That's why there's 13 more sermons after this. But here, Jesus highlights some clear points that should help us begin to see something of the glory of Christ. I want to show you the goal of the Savior, that you may see His glory through His activities on earth. First, the goal. We'll see this in in three points together this morning. First, the goal of the Savior, that we may see His glory And then second, the activity of the Savior. And then finally, the means by which we will see that glory. And so the goal, and then the activity, and then the means by which we can see the glory of Christ as prayed in this very chapter in John 17. First, the goal, the goal of the Savior, that we may see His glory. He prays many things in this chapter. Undoubtedly, many things that are encouraging and they are comforting to us. But the primary goal of his prayer is there contained in the very words that are at the end of the prayer itself. When he says to his father there, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. What? That they may be, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. He does this, of course, in the context of prayer. Jesus is indeed praying to the Father. The opening verse of the chapter tells us as much. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father. In much the same way he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, Jesus here is praying to his Father. This is known, as you know, as the the high priestly prayer of Christ. 
It is called that because Jesus is functioning in his priestly office as he prays. He's not only praying for himself. In fact, very little of the prayer is for himself. Much of the prayers for you and for me. We learn in our shorter catechism in question 25, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Well, we know that he does that. He executes this office of a priest and is once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. That's in front of him. It's coming. Reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. We call this the high priestly prayer because the great high priest, not Aaron, not his sons, the priest, the preeminent priest, the all-glorious priest, is praying before his Father. It is really a picture of the Old Old Testament tabernacle system. As you remember, the tabernacle had a, a number of pieces of furniture in it that table of showbread and the candelabra that lit it was the light of the, to the nations and that altar of incense that burned before the veil day and night that was kept burning day and night that represents the prayers of God's people. And Christ is praying. He is praying. He is as that altar of incense praying before his Father day and night for you. This high priest, he doesn't just pray once. And we have it recorded in this chapter. He daily intercedes on your behalf. I don't remember the exact quote of Robert Murray Machine. I probably should have looked it up, but, so I'm probably going to butcher it. But it, you know, most of us would think it would be so much better if we could just hear Christ praying in the next room and if we could hear him speaking in the words that he was saying and it would bring so much comfort to our hearts. But the fact remains, brothers and sisters, he is praying for you. You don't need to hear it. You know it's true. And that alone should comfort us. It should move us. To behold him, the God-man, the creator of the universe, he who was incarnated on that first, as it were, Christmas morning, prays for you. He's praying for you here. Here in this high priestly prayer, he is praying This high priest, this great high priest, he would enter soon into the very holy place of a holy God. The veil would be separated, granting you and I access to him. But he would go, he would go by virtue of his ascension into that holy place. And there he would remain. And he is there, he is there now dwelling. That he might minister for you. Now the sermon could just end right here. Because if that doesn't encourage you, then I don't know what would. The Lord of glory is intimately concerned for your well-being and prays day and night. He does it here. He does it daily. He does it with the cross that is imminent before him. He's close to this point of offering his life a ransom for many. He is about to lay down his life as the Passover lamb for the sins of his people. It is through this act of humiliation, through this act of coming to earth, as the God-man taking to himself, as we've confessed through the Nicene Creed, adding to himself humanity in which God then eventually will exalt him as that one who then labors for you day and night in the very tabernacle, temple, the very holy place of God. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2. 
where we note the very labor of Christ, even in his humiliation. It's a passage, of course, that we, we know all too well. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it is a, it's really a hymn. It's an ancient hymn of the church. It's been subjected to some abuse through well-meaning interpreters. Let me just read it. This is the priest, the high priest, who is praying for you. Paul tells us, tells the church, that we should have the same mind in us that Christ possessed himself. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is where the rub comes usually. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was pleased to divest something of that glory that he possessed from all worlds, before all worlds, but it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. On this point, we must be very clear that he empties himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's a man. Two arms, two legs, eyes, ears, hair, all of it. Emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has super exalted. That's the word there. It's a compound word. Hyper exalted, literally. This priest, that he might become Lord given the name that's above every name, the name by which we, you and I bow, the name by which all the nations of the earth will bow, this is the priest that's praying for you, who gave himself that we might be able to see his glory. Now, there's an exclusive nature of this prayer. It's quite obvious if you, you were listening to it as it was being read. Jesus is not praying for everybody. He's not praying for every Tom, Dick, and Harry that has lived, is living, will live. He's praying for the elect. Now, as I said in Sunday school, and I'll say now, I am a black coffee Calvinist. I happen to drink black coffee. I really don't know any other way to drink it, but each his own. Jesus is praying for the elect. He is praying for those who he's about to die for. He is praying for those whom he is going to redeem. My name is, his name shall be Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. For he will save his people from their sins. This is to say, friends, that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you have bowed the knee to this king, this suffering servant of Jehovah, that's praying here in John 17, if you have put your knee down on the ground, as it were, and you have humbled yourself before him, you've acknowledged your great need of Christ, then Jesus is praying for you in this chapter. No, no, you're not named, but yes, you are. Jesus isn't praying for some some blob of humanity, some, some maybe people that might or might not believe in him. He knows who he's praying for. He is praying for you and me. Right now, in this chapter, he is praying for you. This is what he's doing. 
In verse 9, we note that he's not praying for the world. He is praying for those he will die to save. It is specific. It is personal to him. When Jesus bowed before his father, he bowed in humble submission to his will on your behalf. Your name was etched on his heart and his mind. How great the Savior's love for miserable sinners. That he, knowing what was ahead of him, would pray specifically for this poor, miserable sinner and for you and me. Mindful of our state, mindful of our great need. So he prays and he requests, he asks of his father many things. This chapter could be easily used as a a lesson of how to pray. Where many of us do not know how. This chapter could teach us much about how to pray. But he's praying for many things in this, in, in many things for his people in this chapter. Just note, just, just a cursory glance across the chapter. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 13, not too many verses away. Again, praying for his people, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, yeah, I know where it is. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, again, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays many things for you in this chapter. But the central prayer, the one that drove him, the one that he desired to see more than anything else, is that you might see his glory. That you might behold his glory. Jesus desires in verse 24, he desires that the glory that he shares with his father. Now think of this, and you have to think. The glory that he possessed with his father before all worlds, which we can't describe. Because it's beyond our imagination. It goes way beyond our ability to even comprehend. It's beyond us. There's no word yet invented of what that looks like. That glory, he says to his father, I desire that they see that glory in me. Wow. What? How? Are you serious? How is it possible for sinners to see this glory? How can it be that this is what Jesus desires? This is what his heart is framed around in this prayer. He wants his people to see the glory that he shares with his father. 
Those that he prays, uh, that they would be rescued from sin. That he prays that they would be one as they are one. The Father and the Son are one. Those that he prays that they would be protected from the evil one. Those that he prays that they would be sanctified by God's word. For his word is truth. All of them important. But the most important thing he says in this chapter is that they would see my glory. Stunning, isn't it? Those things are, that he prays elsewhere, they're important. But they all drive us to that one thing that we would see his glory. That we would behold the majesty of Christ and that we would see his person and that we would know what he has done and we would, for the, probably the first times in our lives, be able to wrap our hands around it some way. We would see all that Christ has done that we might behold him and who he is. He wants us to see his glory. You know, it's not a wish, by the way. It's not as though Jesus prayed this and just kind of threw his hands up in the air and said, well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Because you will. It's in the context of this desire that the Savior has here at the end of this prayer is really eschatological. You know what that means. At the end of days, when we, the, 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 the church militant, now the church at rest, stands in the very presence of Christ, that is when the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer that Jesus prays will actually happen. You will see Him in all of His glory, just as... Plainly as you see me right now, you will see the glory of Christ presented for eternity. We know this as the beatific vision, the Christian hope. What is that hope? That I will be with him, that I will see him, and I will be ever like him for all eternity. This is what Jesus prays for you. All those things ahead of it lead to that glorious end, but it doesn't truncate the fact that we can see something of his glory right now. Every Lord's Day, you have that opportunity. That's why you might hear me say, and maybe you don't like when I pray about people who skip church and they've missed Christ today. Well, they did. You missed his glory. You might think, well, it's pretty weak. Yes. It's dim. Yes. We are still behind a veil of tears. But we can still, every Lord's Day, behold the glory of Christ. That's why, brothers and sisters, it's so vitally important that you're here. As I endeavor, and I fail sometimes to do this, but as I endeavor to put Christ in front of you as often as I can, you need to see him, not me. You need to see Christ. That's his desire for you, that you would see his glory, and you can even in this life. Certainly the eternal context of what Jesus prays here has an end times bent to it, of which will certainly come to pass without question but it does have a temporal context as well we should 
not ignore the fact that we can and should see His glory today. Though we see it through a glass dimly, we still see it in His acts of love and His works of righteousness as the exact image of the Father while He ministered in this world. As John Owen puts it, we see His glory displayed in grace and truth. We can't see it fully, but we can see it dimly. Again, Owen, commenting on this point, he says, what the apostles witnessed was the glory of grace and truth. They saw the glory of Christ's person and office in the administration of grace and truth. And how did they see this glory? Not with their eyes but by faith. It was by faith, he says, and in no other way, for this privilege was given only to those who received him and believed on his name. So let no one deceive himself, Owen warns. He that has no sight of Christ's glory here shall never see it hereafter. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Earlier in the sermon, I asked you whether you even cared about seeing the glory of Christ. Owen would warn us, and he's right. Brothers and sisters, if you have no desire to see the glory of Christ now by faith, you won't see it in the life to come. It is the Christian hope that drives us on to be like our Lord, to see his glory, to see him, to see his person. Is that what you want? You want to be like Jesus. Or don't you care? Owen would say, if you don't care, don't deceive yourself. You're not going to see it hereafter. You see, unbelievers, he goes on to say, see no glory in Christ. They see nothing attractive about him. They despise him in their hearts. Outwardly, they cry like Judas, hail, master. But in their hearts, they crucify him again and again and again. There are many today, this day, December 24th. You know, I know the calendar. I know what today is. I know what everybody's thinking about, too. Many today are thinking about tomorrow. The traditional day of celebration of the birth of Christ. They sing the carols. They hear the sermons. But they cannot and they will not see the glory of Christ and his incarnation. They miss it. It's sentimental. It's cute. It gives me warm, fuzzy feelings as I watch various black and white movies. As we give gifts away, which we should and could and do. Nothing wrong with any of that. But they miss the glory of Christ. How is it possible? The words that they hear, the sermons that are preached, the reading of the Bible, and they miss the glory of Christ. They see Him for the holiday. But they do not see Him as the Lord of glory and the Savior of sinners. How is it possible, you might ask, for sinful man to see the glory of Christ today? You and I, are we're just men, women, young people, children. 
We are weak sinners. Yet Christ still prays in this chapter that we would see his glory. You see, it only comes through the work of grace and truth, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that gives us the eyes to even see the glory of Christ. During the days of the Old Testament church, the high priest, he saw the fullness of the glory, that Shekinah glory that that hovered there over the most holy place. But you know, friends, he was the only one who could see it really and truly up close and personal, and it scared him. But the beauty of Christ draws all men to himself, the glory of his person. He invites, he calls, he prays and pleads with his Father that you and I might enter into that very place in which the glory of Christ has shown that we too would see it. And so we do. We behold it today in the face of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he's done, all that he accomplished. We see it by faith, yes. Of course we do. We see it by faith, faith given to us by the Spirit's work, that desire implanted in us that we would see and desire to see the glory of Christ and be as He is and where He is and all that He prayed in this chapter. We do it by faith with the hope of seeing it by sight. This chapter gives us some, some of those things. It doesn't give us everything, but it gives us some of those things that should 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 cause us to think more deeply about the work of Christ that we might see and behold His glory. That is to say, the activity of Christ. It was God the Holy Spirit who went out of His way, as it were, to pen for us four gospel accounts of the work of Christ. They are not biographies. Yes, they're biographical in some way, but they're designed to show us Christ, who He is, what He has done, why, that we might, like the apostles of old, that we might, like today, 21 centuries removed from the events, stand in awe once again of the glory of Christ. And so I've highlighted for us in this chapter a number of items that should move us at least down that road even a little bit. In coming weeks and future weeks, we will consider a number of items that point us to the glory of Christ. As we consider this evening as incarnation, the week that comes, one week from today, we'll consider in the glory of Christ and His suffering, His offices, His nature, His death, resurrection, and so forth, all of it given to us in the Word of God that we might stand back once again and see the glory of the Son of God. You know, it's the Father's love, it's even His delight to bring glory to His Son. He loves to do that, you know. When you pray and you ask for the Father to show you something of the glory of Christ, He's going to love to answer that prayer. He loves to show glory, His Son, and all of His glory to people the only Savior of sinners. And so as we work through these items, you need to pray. You need to ask that you might see more clearly today than you did yesterday something of the glory 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. These items are framed around the various activities that Jesus has done. And if I had my Bible that I typically work from, I have them all underlined. I don't have them here, so I'm just going to have to work really, as it were, off the, you know, from the, shoot from the hip. But in verse 4, we see the first activity of Christ. What does he say there? Notice how he puts it. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work that the Lord Jesus Christ was given to do? That which was designed to bring glory to his Father by doing what? What the Father willed him to do. As Jesus himself sought to glorify his Father, he too was glorified by his Father. He ultimately glorified his Father by enduring the very death of the cross. In the words of one commentator, he says, Throughout his ministry, Jesus has brought glory to God on earth. That is to say, in everything that he did, every breath he took, every heartbeat, every word, every thought was designed to bring glory to his Father. To do the will that the Father had. That will that was designed in eternity past long before he ever decided to create the world and all that is in it, all things visible and invisible, that will which would rescue sinners from themselves, Jesus designed, purposed to do. Jesus is so clothed, the commentator goes on to say, is so clothed, is so clothed that the Father, clothed the Father with splendor that many human beings have come to praise him. After all, the incarnation itself was a display of glory. Think of that day out there in the field and the shepherds, they see the angels appear in the sky. Glory to God in the highest and glory to God. I've accomplished that, Jesus says. I've glorified you on earth. He was obedient to his Father and everything. Why? For his own sake? No. No and no again, not for his sake. He did not need to be redeemed. He did it for yours. Everything that he did as he sought to glorify his Father on earth was designed that you might receive his glory. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the impetus of that probably most profound statement penned outside the words of the Bible, shorter catechism, question number one. What is it you're here for? What is it you're supposed to do? Brothers and sisters, what are you called to do in this life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus did this. Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever it is we're doing, whether we're twiddling around on social media, watching TV, teaching our children, doing our jobs, sitting in church, driving our cars, everything we do should be done to the glory of God. This is what Jesus does. He humbles himself to that place in which he brings maximum glory to the God of heaven for our sake, for my sake, for your sake. Second, not only does he glorify his Father on earth, he has manifested his name on earth as well. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, he says, and you gave them to me. I have manifested your name. What, what does that even mean? What name? The name that is to be hollowed, the name that is to be revered, the name that is great and awesome, that name that showed itself in Exodus 3 as Moses stood before the burning bush and was required to remove his sandals so the ground is holy, that name that spoke out of that bush, the great I am, he has manifested him to us. That is to say, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, he is the exact representation, the exact image of God. You want to know what God's like? Look to Christ. That's it. You want to know what God is like? You want to know how glorious God is? Look to Christ. He has manifested the name that is revered and hallowed. That name, that all glorious name to us, to you and to me. How does he do that? Well, the text tells us as much, but first he preached the hope of his father's kingdom to a people that the father owned and delivered to him. Maybe you don't like preaching. Maybe you get bored. Maybe you, you, you would prefer someone else to do it. Jesus preached perfect sermons. I've never done that. Jesus does. His sermons are rooted in the father's kingdom. He preached repentance. He preached the gospel. He preached his father. He preached the words his father gave him to preach. That's what he said. That's what he did. Why? Why? Because he had to? It was a job? He was called to it by a congregation. No. He did it that he might rescue you and me from sin. That's why. He preached the hope of his father's kingdom to a people that the father owned and delivered to him. And he lived out the terms of his father as set forth in the moral law of God. In other words, he kept the law as the lawgiver. For his sake? No. For mine? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm the lawbreaker. He is not. You're the lawbreaker. He is not. He's manifested the very name of a holy God to a sinful people. Revealing the full nature of God. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 and following in those, that very glorious chapter. Third, not only has he glorified his father on earth, manifested his name on earth for the sake of the people that the father gave to him. He has given them your words or his words, his father's words. You see that in verse 8 as well as in verse 14. To glorify his father and to rescue us that we might see then and behold his glory, we must hear the infinite wisdom of a holy God. He must give those he determines to save. Not, the, not his own words, not some philosophical word, not some cute thing, not some sermon that might tickle the ears of people, but no, he must give them the words his father gave him to say. And by the way, these words that Jesus gave and spoke, 
These words he gives are not simply a summary of the Father's truth for the elect, but they are the actual words or utterances as the Greek term here makes quite clear. He spoke exactly what his father told him to say. Isn't that what preaching should be? To speak and preach the excellencies of Christ to sinners that they might hear the hope of the gospel and turn from their sin and be rescued? Isn't that what preaching is? He preached, therefore, the whole counsel of God. To see Christ's glory requires that we hear Him. All of Him. All of what the triune God communicates through the inspired Word. These He did. These He said. Those words He offered on that Sermon on the Mount and the five discourses in Matthew and and all of it, everything that came out of His mouth were the utterances of His Father. That he, that he might rescue sinners, that we might see his glory. You see, sinners can't see his glory, can they? That's shut off to them. But by faith, it's possible to please God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How is it I'm going to see the glory of Christ? I have to hear him. I have to be able to hear him. I have to have the spirit of God so I can Hear him. Fourth, I have guarded them. Verse 12. Throughout the ministry of Christ, he protects and shields his disciples from the efforts of the evil one. Regularly, often, you see him coming to the rescue of those poor, helpless, hapless men. He does that today. You might think, well, you know, he he played favors with Peter and John and James, and, and he loves them more than he loves you. Wrong. He loves you as much as he loved them. He guides and guards you even today. He 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 dissuades the efforts of the evil one, protects you from him. To see Christ's glory is to see him not only as prophet, but as king. The one who is subduing all things to himself, who is guarding and defending you from the effects of the fall, the efforts of the evil one, and ultimately eternal destruction. Remember, his prayer is not a wish. In order for you to get to the place where you'll see his glory, not with eyes of faith, but with your eyes that you've got in your head, glorified eyes, you have to be protected from the evil one that you might not be lost. Fifth, verse 22, I have given them my glory. The manifestation of the name, the triune God, the Son of God gives to them that glory that he shares with his Father. It's almost, too, it's, it's almost mind-boggling to think of that. I can't even get my mind around just exactly how to express that. Except just to use words that just fall way short of what it would look like. What is that glory that the son shares with his father? Can you tell me? Because I don't know. It's beyond anything I've ever seen or could even imagine to see. Yet, he says, I've given them my glory. 
Why does he do that? Well, he does it so that they may be one as the Father and the Son are one. The fellowship of the Trinity is clearly in view here. We participate then, therefore, in that inseparable bond that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's given us his glory. That glory that he's had with his Father and the Spirit before all worlds. He gives to us through the redeeming work and the cross that lies in front of him. We behold that glory as we see him in the glory he has with his Father and the Spirit from before all worlds. Can you describe it? Because I can't. I just know it must be glorious. It must be something beyond imagination. Why? Because this is an infinite glory that he will share, give to you and me. How we see it. These are nice. Thank you very much for telling me these things. What are the means to see Christ's glory? Well, brothers and sisters, we see it today by faith. We believe that this is the Lord of glory who's praying this prayer. We believe that the prayer that he prays is for us and will be accomplished in us. We believe by faith that we will see his glory in fullness someday. And you will. We're changed, aren't we, from that dead, lifeless sinners who can't see the glory of Christ to alive and growing Christians. And as we are alive and growing, we're beholding more and more the glory of Christ. We're being set up, as it were, that on that great and glorious day when we don't need faith anymore, we will see it by sight. Those eyes that you've got right now in your head, perfected, glorious, no more glasses. No more seeing through a glass dimly. Maybe you'll stand and shout hallelujah. Maybe you'll fall on your face and be unable to speak. Maybe there's something in between. All I can tell you is that this prayer that Jesus prayed will and certainly come to pass. First by faith and then by sight, you will see the beautiful person of Christ. At the end of every worship service here in this place, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They're not just words. Why? I'm sick of this world. Okay. I'm tired of battling sin. Okay. I'm tired of troubles and trials. I'm tired of running out of money at the end of the week. I'm tired of all. I'm, okay, that's fine. No, no. Ultimately, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might behold him in all of his beauty. You see, heaven wouldn't be heaven if Christ weren't there. None more important do we pray this prayer than the one Jesus prayed in this chapter that we may see His glory, to be with Him and like Him. But you can't see Him today. 
You see him by faith. You behold it. The person and work of Christ as given to us in the very word of God. We can stand in awe of the triune God who presents the Son of God to us that we might behold him. You can. You do it by faith, believing that someday you will do it by sight. So what do you do now, in the here and now, as you await that day of sight and live by faith? Well, you pray. You ask the Father in heaven. He's in his, Jesus asked his Father in heaven that, 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 that we would see his glory. You ask the Father. You repeat that prayer. Just as your son prayed, Father, I pray that I would see the glory of Christ. I so want to see it. And as you wait for that day of sight, second, you meditate often on the work of Christ. You know the stories. Have you meditated on Christ? You know what he did, the healing and the sight given and the dead raised and the feeding of 5,000 and 4,000. Have you seen the glory of Christ in those stories? Do you see something of his person, his nature? As you do, you meditate often on that work, beholding his glory and all that he did. Because all that he did was designed that you might see his glory. Not by faith, but by sight. All that he did is that he would then give you, be able then to give you his spirit that would give you the eyes of faith to see him and be with him and to be like him for all eternity. The glory of Christ. May we see him. Maybe for the first time. Amen. Our Father, we thank you again for your word and we thank you that you delight so much in giving glory to your Son. May we see his glory. May we behold him. All that he has done, all that he accomplished, everything, all for our sake. May we see him by faith today, by sight in the days to come. Grant us your spirit and help us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.